Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. I was telling my colleague, I don't know why, like I I published three books and I did like radio and television interviews and this somehow feels more nerve-wracking than any of those. <laughs> From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline, where we go behind the stories and talk to the reporters who have made covering crime their lives. I'm your host, Kathleen Goldhar. I promise you, it'll. once we get started, you won't feel nervous. You know, if it was just a trial, like I'm talking about my memory of a trial, that's pretty easy. But when we're talking about like 20 years of coverage and stories that I've written, like I just might be off dates or On a cold Regina night in the winter of 1983, Joanne Wilson drove into her garage after work. She never made it inside. As she got out of her car, the 43-year-old mother of three was violently attacked by a man lying in wait. Her murder was big news. Newspaper headlines and TV reports blared words like shocking and sensational. But looking back on it today, what's most surprising is that we were surprised it happened at all. As news of her killing broke, all eyes turned to her ex-husband. Colin Thatcher was a household name if you followed Canadian politics at the time. He came from a wealthy and powerful family. His father had been Premier of Saskatchewan, and Thatcher himself had been a provincial cabinet minister. There was talk of a long, successful career ahead. But in the years before the murder, the couple had been embroiled in a protracted and contentious custody battle, and public records showed a history of domestic abuse throughout their 17-year marriage. But on that cold night in January 1983, Joanne Wilson might have thought that that was all behind her. She had remarried, moved on. Her ex-husband, however, had not. My name is Barb Pahalik. I'm the city editor at the Regina Leader Post. I've Barb didn't report on this story back in 1983. No, I actually would have been in high school at the time um, this whole case was unfolding. But I grew up in Regina, and it was certainly a case that I think everyone was talking about at the time. Colin Thatcher was the energy minister of the day, and my father worked within that oil and pipeline industry. So Colin would have been someone that he would have brush shoulders with, not, not a friendship, but brush shoulders with. My biggest memory from that time, honestly, is at the time of the trial, there was a big special report um, that was produced by the Leader Post. And I just remember for years afterwards, that yellowed special report was something that was always at our house. The murder of Joanne Wilson received wall-to-wall coverage. But it wasn't because of who she was. It was mostly because of who did it. I think now and even then, we kind of lost sight of the victim. So tell me a little bit about Joanne Wilson. 
Joanne was born in Ames, Iowa, grew up in Ames, Iowa, um, you know, a rural community, not, not that large. It would have been on par with Moose Jaw, the Moose Jaw community where, where Thatcher was from. I, I remember, you know, recollections from her mother talking about, you know, her being very outgoing, having a lot of dates, not dating anyone very seriously until she met Colin, but someone who was a real joiner and a goer and very involved in a lot of activities and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. She goes um, to university at the local college and uh, joins a sorority. It's through a blind date that she meets Colin Thatcher. One of her sorority sisters is going out and invites Joanne to come with her. She meets Colin, eventually decides to move to Moose Jaw, and her area of study was what, what we would now call home economics. So when she moves to Moose Jaw, the only job she was really qualified for was to become a home economics teacher. And she comes to Moose Jaw and uh, gets his job and then marries Colin. And, you know, I've seen their wedding photos. They look very happy. They're those sort of typical photos you would have seen at that time. But those pictures were for show, for public consumption. Because inside their home, Thatcher was angry, violent, and controlling. An ex-girlfriend described him as having a Jekyll and Hyde personality, and he would belittle Joanne and their children, even when there were other people around. Eventually, Joanne had had enough. Today we know that the most dangerous time for a battered spouse is when they finally decide to leave, and that threat became that much greater when she took off with their kids. So when she left, she initially took Stephanie, who I believe was about uh, nine at that point, and she took Reagan with her, so the two youngest children. It was my understanding from everything I've read and heard, um, she sort of felt Greg had become very, very close to his father, and that there was no way to sort of expect that he would just come with her, and, and that they could kind of live happily ever after, if I could put it that way. So she takes the two children, and she leaves, and she goes to Brampton, Ontario initially. Colin discovers that she's left, goes to Brampton, takes the two kids, comes back, and it's sort of the start of what becomes a very long and protracted custody battle. Custody battle is putting it lightly. Joanne was harassed for months on end. The threats, the sugar and the gasoline, the, the calls and everything. I think what really brings everything to a head is Joanne is in her Regina home and she gets shot in the shoulder through the window. Standing in her own kitchen, emptying the dishwasher, Joanne Wilson was shot through a patio door with a high-powered rifle. But the police never found out who shot her. So we can't say for sure that it had anything to do with this custody battle. You are quite correct. He has never been convicted or charged with that shooting. So we don't know who did it. Regardless of who did it or why, there was a dramatic impact. Early in the separation, Joanne had accepted that her eldest son, Greg, would stay with their dad. But she had decided to fight for custody of her two other children. The shooting changed all that. After that, I think just realizes, like, 
she needs to make the best life possible for Stephanie. And even though she has won every court decision, she effectively says, I'm, I'm, I think it's in the best interests. I'll let Reagan stay with his dad. She opened up about this at a press conference, saying that she was exhausted and terrified. And she says, like, I'm just going to stop the battles. Joanne Wilson left the press conference, walked away from the court battles, and hoped to find peace with her new husband and daughter. The divorce is finally finalized, and not long after that, she marries Tony Wilson. Tony was an executive at a a large steel company, and uh, it was sort of... I think really very much so a fresh start for her. This was the life I think that she had expected, you know, perhaps when when she was that sorority sister dating Colin, like this was the new beginning. And there's this lovely photo of her um, holding this umbrella over her shoulder and she's just radiant in her smile. And I, I think very, very happy to sort of have someone who seemed to really care for her. So on January 21st, 1983, Craig Dotson was walking home. It's around six o'clock. He hears a gunshot being fired from the garage of the Wilson home. He goes into the garage. He finds Joanne lying on a, in a, you know, in the garage, clearly dead in a pool of blood. He sees what looks like a young man in his 30s running from the garage. I think what always struck me about the case is how how much Joanne had fought to live. Like, she wasn't just shot in the head. Lots of defensive wounds. So this wasn't a hitman who comes in, kills someone, and walks away. From the beginning, the police thought, you know, this is a crime of passion. This is someone who really did not like this person and wanted them dead. What is found at the scene, and I mean, there's so much to the evidence, but one of the critical things that's found at the scene is a sales receipt for um, a, a gasoline purchase from a gas station in the Karen area, which is where Colin Thatcher's ranch was. And the signature on that gas receipt says something like Thatch, right? So the assumption being, this is Colin Thatcher's signature. Um, There is a vehicle that's seen in the area and the last three numbers on the license plate matched a vehicle that had been issued to Colin Thatcher. The other thing that I think probably would have factored into like who's the primary suspect, Joanne had won a very significant property settlement as part of the divorce case. The settlement was in the neighborhood of $500,000. She is shot to death in February, and the first payment for that property settlement was due in that February. The prosecution also had a key witness, a local man named Gary Anderson. He's a bit of a drifter, uh, you know, a bit of a a petty-type criminal. Apparently, Colin Thatcher had tried to get Gary Anderson to help him kill Joanne, but Gary didn't go through with it. 
Then after the murder, he went to the police, and the cops got him to go back to Thatcher, this time wearing a wire. Gary meets Colin out in a field because Colin is very afraid of telephones and microphones, and he knows he's under a microscope. On that tape, he never says, yeah, yeah, I did it. But there's all kinds of discussions about, you know, I got rid of the things you asked me to get rid of. And at one point, Colin tells Gary Anderson something to the effect about, you know, if the police ever ask you any questions about this, deny, deny, deny. What was Thatcher's alibi then the night that his ex-wife was killed? So Colin Thatcher's alibi that night was that he was home with his sons having dinner. And his sons testified to that effect, as did the housekeeper. And his lawyer, Tony Merchant, also relates that there was a phone call to the home. And so he also felt that Colin Thatcher had been at home. It became known as the hamburger helper alibi. And I think at the time there was even like maybe t-shirts made up to that effect. But supposedly they were all at home and had eaten hamburger helper that night for, for dinner. And that's why everyone called it the hamburger helper defense or alibi. Regardless of his denials, Thatcher does get found guilty. What is he sentenced to? So he is found guilty of first-degree murder, and it was a jury of five women and seven men. And what they were told was, you could find him guilty of first-degree murder whether you believed he directly killed Joanne Wilson or believed that he had hired someone and had a hand in directing her murder. So we don't know exactly what the jury found and and which way, and they didn't have to be unanimous in how they got to a finding of first-degree murder, but he was convicted of first-degree murder. Of course, first-degree murder in Canada carries a life sentence with no parole eligibility for a minimum 25 years. But he didn't go down easily, right? He fought this as best he could through the courts? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to put it is Colin Thatcher had the money to exercise every provision that existed in Canadian law to fight the charge. And not, of course, not every accused has the ability to do that. So he made an appeal to the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal where the murder conviction was upheld. He then made a bid to the Supreme Court of Canada. And again, that was unsuccessful. So at that point, he's now sort of exercised every layer of court. And so his next option at that point was to make what's known as a mercy application to the justice minister of the day, who at that point was Alan Rock. It's around this time, nearly 10 years after Joanne Wilson is killed, that Barb gets assigned to the story. In 1993, we're coming up on the anniversary of Joanne Wilson's murder. And uh, my city editor back then, he assigns me to do a piece going back to some of the people who were involved in the original case and just asking them for their memories of, like, the night that they found out Joanne Wilson had died. One of those people was the deputy chief of police. He remembered when he found out that 
you know, Joanne Wilson had died. He went out to the scene that night. And his comment was something like, it, it wasn't unexpected. Like, there was sort of this sense that, you know, the inevitable had happened. I mean, that's what really struck me about reading the stories now and going back to it, how obvious it was that her life was in danger. And it was 1983, so I, I know times were different. But why wasn't more done to keep her safe? You know, that's that's an interesting question. And I know, like, through the years, we've just become so much better at protecting women in domestic violence situations. Don't forget, like, they, they had been separated and, and, and divorced for quite a period of time before she was shot, you know, shot the first time. And I think in that way, maybe she just wasn't seen anymore as a a domestic abuse victim. You know, it's an interesting question. Why wasn't more done? I mean, my only guess is like where we were in, in our protection of domestic violence victims wasn't there, but also she wasn't seen as someone perhaps that needed that protection because she wasn't sort of living in a home where we got to take her and put her in a shelter, you know? Yeah. And it's tragic, right? You could you could see the freight train coming and you couldn't stop it. I mean, I feel like we want to say we're different, but I suspect there's lots of stories where we're not that different today. And and that's why I think this case has sort of resonated with me for for so long. But Saskatchewan continues to have one of the worst rates of domestic homicide. So how far removed are we, really, from the situation that Joanne Wilson faced? And where is Colin Thatcher today? As far as I know, (laughs) he remains uh, living in the Karen area where his ranch is. Colin Thatcher spent 22 years behind bars. And during that time, he used every process possible to try and get early parole, maintaining his innocence the entire time. So the Mercy application that I've talked about, it doesn't succeed, um, basically. So in 2000, he has his very first faint hope hearing. There's a jury summoned. He was turned down at that very first hearing. Then a second hearing, because you're allowed to... I think very much the tactics changed by the second one to show us a different face of Colin Thatcher, to present him as a senior who maybe didn't have much time to live, and gosh darn, he deserved a break. How old was he at this point? He would have been around 65 years old. His father had died of a heart attack at a somewhat young age. It was made out that he's a man who, who, because of his father's death, perhaps also has some heart problems and and there's some risk. That hearing, like, let's not forget, is 2003. Colin's still alive. The predictions were off, I guess. (laughs) And it was successful. He's, he got out. The the jury agrees that he should have a chance to apply for early parole eligibility. Eventually, he is successful. He gets day parole. 
there's a parole hearing again for a full parole application. And I remember Colin saying he just wanted to fade away and, you know, stay at his ranch and be there with his grandchildren and his children. And eventually, in fact, he got his wish. He was released. But he didn't fade away. He wrote a book. That's right. In September of 2009, he releases a book called Final Appeal, Anatomy of a Frame. And so it's sort of his take on Wilson's murder and why he believes he was set up. A year before the book was published, Saskatchewan rushed to pass a law that would prevent people like Thatcher from profiting off their crimes. The book did make its way onto a few bestseller lists, but he was forced to turn the profits over to the government. And the province donated the money to groups supporting victims of crime. How has this story impacted the work you do now? How has it impacted the work I do now? Hmm. Maybe a different question instead of how. I always found that as a reporter, every story I did laid more groundwork for me understanding or trying to understand systems and society. And whether I recognize it or not, I would often know that the past reporting that I did impacted the work that I did next. So tell me a little bit about how this case sort of still exists in the work that you do. I don't know if I'm going to give you the answer you want, but but bear with me. So I'm a bit of a crime nerd, I guess, is the way to describe it. And I, I like historical crime, and I like digging into old files and things like that. And I've published three books, and, and essentially they're crime stories about Saskatchewan. And in that regard, I've I've gone through the archives looking at old files on cases going back to the early 1900s, right? So one of the cases I came across is is a woman who is a cleaner at the legislative building in the early 1900s. She has a very, very abusive husband who beats her up quite regularly. She tried to go to the courts to get some sort of a restraining order. And if you can imagine what it might have taken in 1920s for a woman to go, who, who didn't speak the language, they were, they were immigrants, to go to the justice system and try to get a restraining order. Um, it wasn't very successful. And she's leaving the legislative building one day. And she is, um, as she comes down the sidewalk, her husband is there lying in wait with a shotgun and he shoots her to death and she bleeds out on the steps of the legislative building. I think when I came across that case, uh, and then the cases that have come since, what struck me is just how we can't seem to move past this, just how these themes repeat over and over and over through the centuries, right? And I, I have covered other you know, less prominent women from Joanne Wilson who have also died brutal deaths at the hands of people who said they once loved them. And that somehow we still haven't figured out a way to protect women. I mean, we had a horrific case in this province a few years back where a estranged husband goes back 
and kills his wife and children. It's, it's horrible, right? And I remember those lovely photos of that woman and these children. And that somehow, you know, through that woman who died on the steps of the legislature in the 1920s, through every century, we, every decade, we haven't figured out a way to, to prevent that from happening is, is just, I think that's what stays with me, the frustration. It's become part of, of the fabric of this province in some way, you know, because it, it is that very sad tale of, of what happens sometimes to women in this province. Next time on True Crime Byline. It, it's funny because, you know, it was sort of in my career at that point, that it was the biggest story that I had covered. And normally, you know, you would look back as a journalist on a story like that and sort of kind of revel in the details of it. For a lot of journalists, the trial of serial killer Paul Bernardo was career defining. Not for Tom Blackwell. He did everything he could to try and forget about it. I didn't read any of the books that were that were written uh, about the case. I've tried to avoid the, the story since then. True Crime Byline is produced by Mitchell Stewart and me, Kathleen Goldhart. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Graphics and artwork designed by Bryce Hall. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Special thanks to Russell Wongerski, the editor-in-chief of the Regina Leader Post, and Lucinda Choden, the senior vice president of editorial for Post Media. 